Good morning. Well, this is great up here. Thank you so much for your generosity. I can't imagine that any preacher anywhere has a better backdrop than I have to preach this morning. Um, I just really want us to take a moment and, and pray to God and a blessing over this offering that's been made this morning. Let's pray together. Father, our prayer is a simple one. Father, we pray your blessings on those who have given this food. Father, we pray your blessings on those who will receive this food. And Father, we pray that your name will be glorified and magnified both in the giving and the receiving. And we pray this through the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So this is a special Sunday here at Netherwood Park, and this seems like the season of time when every Sunday is a special Sunday. Next Sunday is a special Sunday also. Next Sunday is our quarterly combined worship Sunday. So next Sunday, this worship service will not meet. We'll have Bible class at the regular time at 10 o'clock, and then our second worship service will be a combined worship service at 11, and then we'll join together over in the gym after that for a potluck meal together so we can spend time as a family um, enjoying each other's company, catching up on things that are going on, and just really celebrating the fact that God has called us together. So please plan on being here next Sunday for Bible class and then for our combined worship service at 11, and plan on staying for the potluck as well. Also, want to update you on Project 6K. Uh, for those of you who may not know at this point, Project 6K is our Bible reading challenge. We've challenged ourselves as a congregation to read at least 6,000 books of the Bible in 2016. And here we are on the first Sunday in November. We've read 6,740 books of the Bible together. So good job. They, the results keep coming in. You guys keep reading. It's wonderful to see. And we look forward to the end of the year when we'll see where that number ends up, and as we set a new number for next year. So keep up the good work. Keep immersing yourself in God's Word. So last week we kicked off a new sermon series. It's a new sermon series from the Old Testament book of Malachi. If you have your Bibles, you might want to go ahead and turn to Malachi now. It might take a little while to find it because it's such a small book. It's the last book in the Old Testament, so you'll find it right before the gospel written by Matthew. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Malachi reads like a courtroom drama. You'll remember that we said that each week during this series, what we're going to do is we're going to place ourselves in the courtroom. We're going to take our seats in Malachi's courtroom right alongside Malachi's people. You'll also remember, if you were here last week with it, we said that those seats in this court are going to be uncomfortable. Not uncomfortable because they're not padded, but uncomfortable because we're going to subject ourselves to some uncomfortable questions. We're going to subject ourselves to the same uncomfortable questions that God is going to ask the people of Malachi who have gathered in this courtroom And if you were here last week, you'll also remember that this courtroom drama opened with a real surprise, a shocking surprise. It opened with God on trial. It opened with God being accused by the people of not loving them. See, the people of Judah were tired. They were tired of being insignificant. They were tired of their daily struggle just to survive. They were tired of seeing their enemies prosper. They were tired of waiting on God to act. They were tired of waiting for God to keep his promises. 
And because they became tired of waiting on God, they stopped trusting God. And when they stopped trusting God, they began to question God. They, in effect, took God to court and they accused him of not loving them. They accused him of not loving his chosen people. And when, in his own defense, God replied that he has always loved his people. He's loved them in the past, he loves them now, and he will love them in the future. God's people could barely contain their anger, could barely contain their cynicism. And they told God to prove it. They called, told God to prove his love. Prove it, God. How have you loved us? And God's proof of his love of his people was really quite simple. He said, how have I not loved you? Have I not loved you by repeatedly forgiving you and repeatedly welcoming you back as you chased after foreign gods? Have I not loved you by showing you favor even though your wickedness oftentimes exceeded the wickedness of the wicked countries that surround you? He said, have I not loved you by bringing you back home, home from exile? How have I not loved you? And today as we enter into the courtroom, we'll see that the mood in the courtroom is going to shift. The focus in the courtroom is going to shift. Today we're going to feel the courtroom become extremely uncomfortable. Because God is about to move from the seat of the accused to the seat of the accuser. God is about to demand an accounting from the very people who called him to account for his love. God is about to question the love of the very people who doubted his love. God is about to turn the tables in the courtroom. And he turns the tables by asking Malachi's people and by asking us at the same time, so how have you loved me? You seem very concerned about my love for you, but let's talk about your love for me. How have you loved me? Reading from Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Listen as God addresses the court. Listen to what God says. He says, a son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. And then he says, it is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Do you hear what just happened in the courtroom? God just took control of the courtroom. God just restored order to the court. God is the one who's now making the statements. God is the one who's now asking the penetrating questions. And God begins to restore order in the court by pointing out the obvious. By pointing out something that everybody can agree in. He says, we all know. He says, we can all agree that children honor their fathers. And we all know and we can all agree that servants respect their masters. And then he follows that statement up with some really uncomfortable questions. He says, if I am your father, and we all know I am your father, 
Where is the honor that you, my children, owe me? He says, if I am your master, and we all know that I am your master, then where is the respect that you, my slaves, my servants, owe me? And then before anyone can answer, God singles out the priests who have gathered among them, and he accuses them of showing contempt, contempt for his name. Talking about uncomfortable. Can you imagine being, uh, being accused by God of having contempt for his name? Can you imagine being accused by God of being filled with scorn for his name? Can you imagine being accused by God of ridiculing his name? Talking about being uncomfortable. It's a good thing that God's directing those kind of serious charges against the priests and not against us, right? It's a good thing that we don't have anything in common with those priests who are gathered in that courtroom, right? It's a good thing we don't have anything in common with those priests who were responsible for making sure that only acceptable sacrifices were brought to God. It's a good thing we don't have anything in common with those priests who are responsible for making sure that only unblemished sacrifices were presented to God. It's a good thing we don't have anything in common with those priests who were charged with the responsibility of making sure that only the best sacrifices were brought to God. It'd be a good thing. It would be a much more comfortable thing if we didn't have anything in common with those priests. It would be a much more comfortable thing if it was only true. But you'll remember that Peter has reminded us that we all, Peter has reminded us that all of us, all disciples of Christ are in fact priests. Peter reminds us that when Jesus, who is our high priest, offered himself on the cross, when he offered the perfect sacrifice and he offered it for our sins, he made it possible for us as his followers Jesus made it possible for us as a new order of priests to actually bring our sacrifices directly to our God through Jesus Christ. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. He said, as you come to Jesus, who is the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are priests. We collectively are a priesthood. And we are responsible for bringing our sacrifices to our God. So when Malachi's priest asked God, 
how have we shown contempt for your name? We as priests need to listen very carefully to God's answers. And as we're listening to those answers, we need to be asking our own question. We need to be asking ourselves, have we as God's priest ever shown contempt for God's name in our worship? And to answer our question and to see how we might have shown contempt for God's name in our worship, we need to listen to God tell us what contempt for his name looks like. You'll remember back in verse 6, the priest asked, How have we shown contempt for your name? This is how God replied. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, You have placed defiled food on my altar. And the priest asked, How have we defiled you? And God replied, By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, When you bring blind animals for sacrifices, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to you. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among all the nations. So how do you show contempt for God's name in worship? Well, here's how you show contempt for God's name. You show content by substituting half-hearted ritual for wholehearted worship. You do the bare minimum possible. Your worship becomes an afterthought. Something that's just to be squeezed in between your more important activities. Your worship becomes something that you engage in when you don't have more pressing concerns. How do you show contempt for God's name in worship? Well, here's how you show contempt for God's name. You show contempt for God's name by bringing your leftovers. Instead of offering God your very best, you offer him what nobody else wants. 
you offering what nobody else would even accept. Your gifts that you offer come without a price. They cost you nothing. You show contempt for God's name by putting your coins or your bills or your check into the offering plate. And that offering cost you nothing. No sacrifice was required. You didn't have to give up anything. You don't have to do without anything. You didn't have to say no to anything. It cost you nothing. And you show contempt for God's name by giving to the poor only your discards. Your discards that aren't worth anything to you, so they cost you nothing. And you show contempt for God's name by giving God and giving his church and giving his people only the remnants of your time. Remnants of time that deprive you of nothing. How do you show contempt for God's name in worship? You show contempt for God's name by treating him as a beggar. Treating him like he's a beggar who will be satisfied with anything. Pleased with just anything. As if he'll be pleased with just half your heart. As if he'll be pleased with your coins that cost you nothing. As if he'll be pleased with your discards that are worth nothing. As if he'll be pleased with just the remnants of your time that deprive you of nothing. Are you uncomfortable yet? I'm uncomfortable. I want you to know I've been uncomfortable for weeks. I've been uncomfortable for weeks as I've been studying Malachi. As I've been preparing for these sermons and as I've put myself in Malachi's courtroom. I've been uncomfortable because I know I've been a guilty priest. I know I've been guilty of substituting ritual at times for worship. I know at times I've been guilty of putting coins in the plate that cost me nothing. And guilty of giving my worthless discards to the poor as if they meant something. And giving my scraps of time to God's kingdom work that deprive me of nothing and I realize as we live here in our in-between time I realize and I see that we're all in danger of falling into the same contempt trap the trap that captured Malachi's people and captured Malachi's priests and for us to be able to avoid falling into that contempt trap contempt for God's name And to find out how to get out of that trap if we find that we have fallen into it. We really need to understand how you get there. How do you fall into contempt? How do you find your way to contempt for God's name? We need to know how you fall into contempt. And today we fall into contempt the same way that Malachi's people had fallen into contempt. See, we fall into contempt for God's name when we forget who God is. When we lose sight of the fact that God is our Father, and when we lose sight of the fact that God is our Master, we also lose sight of the fact that we, God's children, owe our Master everything. 
we lose sight of the fact that we, God's slaves, owe our master everything. When we forget who God is, we forget what God is due. And when we forget what God is due, we don't give our father and our master the reverence that's due him. We don't give our father and master the honor and respect that's due him. We don't approach our father and master with the awe that is due him. And we don't give our father and master the obedience that's due him. We fall into contempt when we forget what God, our Father, and our Master has done for us and what our Father and our Master is due from us. And we fall into contempt for God's name when we don't value God like we should value God. You see, we quit giving God things of great value when we no longer greatly value God. We fall into contempt for God's name when we start placing a higher value on other people and on other things than the value we place on our God. Remember what God said just a little bit ago. He said, try offering your worthless sacrifices to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? See, we fall into contempt when we offer others more than we're willing to offer our God. Would the authorities, would the IRS be pleased with the coins that we casually toss in the collection plate? Would our families, would they accept, would they be pleased with the discards that we give to the poor? Would our bosses be pleased? Would our bosses accept the remnants of time that we give to our church, to his kingdom to God's people? Would our hobbies, would our teammates, would our coaches, would our buddies, would our fellow club members, would they be pleased? Would they accept the remnants of time that we give to our church? See, we fall into contempt for God's name when we place a higher value on others and other things than the value we place on God. Our God who is our Father, our God who is our Master. And we fall into contempt for God's name when we allow the extraordinary to become simply ordinary. You know, it's an extraordinary privilege to be called sons and daughters of God. It's an extraordinary privilege to be called slaves of Jesus Christ. It's an extraordinary privilege to be called priests of the living God. It's an extraordinary privilege to be guided by the Holy Spirit. It's an extraordinary privilege to have our prayers heard by the Holy God. It's an extraordinary privilege to commune with Jesus at his table. It's an extraordinary privilege to lift our voices to God. It's an extraordinary privilege to give back to God. It's an extraordinary privilege to be loved by God. And it's an extraordinary privilege to be asked to love God in return. And when we allow any of those extraordinaries to become simply ordinaries, 
then we've fallen into contempt for God's name. So when God asks us, how have you loved me? I want to be able to say, I want all of us to be able to say that we have loved God with our wholehearted worship. Not to say that we have shown God contempt with our half-hearted worship. And the way we love God with our wholehearted worship, the way we keep the extraordinary from becoming simply ordinary, it doesn't have anything to do with this church building. It doesn't have anything to do with the lighting. It doesn't have anything to do with the pews. It doesn't have anything to do with the acoustics. Nothing to do with the graphics on the screen that you see behind me. Nothing to do with the color scheme of this auditorium. It doesn't have anything to do with this building. And we don't keep the extraordinary from becoming ordinary by selecting the right songs to sing. And we don't keep the extraordinary from becoming ordinary by picking the right yearly theme for us as a church. No, we keep the extraordinary from becoming ordinary by realizing that our God is anything but ordinary. You see, the quality of our worship is in direct proportion to our concept of our God. So if we all come into this place with an extraordinary concept of our extraordinary God, guess what? We're going to engage in extraordinary worship. If we come into this place, all of us come into this place with an extraordinary understanding of God's extraordinary value, guess what? Our worship will be anything but ordinary. It'll happen if we come into this place, come here expecting to worship the great king, the great king who is over all the earth. And if we come into this place to worship our extraordinary father, our father who is the creator, who is the sustainer, our father who is the redeemer. And it'll happen if we come into this place to worship our extraordinary master, our master who guides us, our master who empowers us, our master who commands our very lives. See, if we come into this place understanding that the great king, understanding that our great father, understanding that our extraordinary master rightfully demands from us, rightfully demands from his children, rightfully demands from his slaves, rightfully demands from us everything. He demands from us, and rightfully so, our lives. He demands from us, and rightfully so, our love. He demands from us, and rightfully so, our all, our everything. And if we come into this place to worship with that concept of our God, I promise you our worship will be anything but ordinary. We also need to understand that the quality of our worship is not only in direct proportion to our concept of our God, the quality of our worship is also in direct proportion of our gratitude to God. See, if we come into this place recognizing what God has done for us at the cross, if we come into this place with a true realization that we were dead, 
that God through Jesus Christ has made us alive, then the only reasonable response to what God has done for us through Jesus Christ on the response is to give back our very best. And if we all give back our very best, our worship will be anything but ordinary. How has God loved us? He gave us his only son. How has God loved us? He made us his children. How has God loved us? He has forgiven us of our sins. How has God loved us? God continues to forgive our sins. How has God loved us? Well, God has also loved us by not accepting anything less than the very best from his children. Because we are the children of the Most High God. So brothers and sisters, let's give our Father, let's give our Master our very best. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you recognizing you as our Father. Father, we come before you acknowledging you as our Master. And Master, we come before you acknowledging you as our Redeemer. And Father, help us to be humble children of yours. Father, help us to be humble servants and slaves of yours. And Father, help us to live in the reality of your redeeming power. So that, Father, we will always bring our best to you. So that it may never be said of us that we show contempt for your name. And we pray this through the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So let's end our time together in song, in worship. But as we do it, let's make sure that we give God our very best. Let's stand, let's sing, let's worship.